This is School for Gifted Youngsters, a podcast devoted solely to Jonathan Hickman's X-Men run, now six months in the making. And I am Nolan, and I am joined by the two co-founders of this podcast, Marius. Hello. And Ian. Uh, Ian here. Uh, Welcome to School for Gifted Youngsters. All our students, all our teachers. We are two New Yorkers and a German who find this X-Men run extremely transformative. And we're going to start this podcast off by talking about why. So this started about six months ago with, I believe, House of X number one. Yes. And and over the following 12 issues in House of X and Powers of 10, uh, the whole landscape of mutant life in the Marvel Universe was changed in ways totally unexpected and uh i'd like to ask my co-host to explain how that was i think what hawkspox did i think what house of x powers of 10 did um it is the first time in a pretty long time that we have a really clear direction for the x-men franchise again it's very um it's very thoroughly planned i think and it's it's been a long time in the making. I, I feel like you can tell with this book. It's a very clear sense of direction. Do you agree? Oh, yes, I, I agree. I, I'm very excited by the new status quo that we get right out of the gate in the very first issue of House of X, where uh, Xavier and the X-Men and many of their enemies, Magneto, Mystique, have sat down, uh, put aside their differences, set aside the white hats and the black hats and the superhero, supervillain melodrama to instead focus on mutants. Mutants as a people, mutants as a culture, mutants as a nation, that nation being Krakoa, the formerly mutant-eating living island, which has become a paradise for mutant kind. So why don't we just briefly explain uh, uh, how this change came about? We don't want to bore listeners who have read this stuff, but we do want to uh, encourage listeners who haven't read it to check it out. So, So... just seven, eight months ago, uh, you know, X-Men in Marvel Comics was composed of a smattering of teams that was at that time, if I'm not mistaken, mixing heroes and villains, as is somewhat traditional in X-Men, but did not constitute an independent nation with diplomatic uh, sovereignty and um, major economic rights. So how was it that... Um, uh, this transition came to be in X-Men comics. Yeah, that's right. I feel like when we last saw the X-Men, they were in a, in a pretty different spot. We got the uh, the Age of X-Men storyline uh, going on where Jean and uh, most of the other X-Men characters were kind of out of universe for just a couple months. Uh, in the last Uncanny X-Men run we read, it was very Cyclops-centric. Um, we had mutants kind of running around in, in this place without the X-Men and with many characters dying. Um, and just a, just an all-around very 
desperate situation. And then when we last saw the X-Men, it was pretty radically different from where we pick up in uh, House of X-1, which is actually set after a five-month time skip, which is pretty significant, I think, because in many ways, and, and many X-Men readers feel this way, I think, it has felt like a pretty significant, like like soft reboot even. And with many of the characters, we see them in, in very different places. Uh, some of them even, I, I think Scott Summers is a pretty good example at this point. Um, some of them even having gone back to some of their old ways, maybe. Um, some of that kind of messy continuity uh, that we've seen in the last decade, I want to say, like stripped back maybe do you agree with that i think that with krakoa everyone has a new chance to reinvent themselves as a citizen of this new society of this future society uh many uh krakoans as we learn toward the end of hawks pox are newly returned to life as through cerebro uh Xavier has uh, been able to present an in-universe effective actual revolving door of death as there are resurrection protocols in place where a bunch of characters that last we checked on them, they'd been dead for a couple of years, some of them for a number of years. Uh, In such a setting, it seems only fair that people are reevaluating who they are in this world, what kind of new person, what kind of new mutant they want to be. Indeed, they have a new a new type of society to situate themselves in. But before we get into that new type of society, let's talk about this aspect of resurrection for a second, because this is a very elegant solution to a very serious problem that X-Men has, that all comics have to some extent, in which no character death is very permanent and everyone can expect that when a new writer takes on a given title that they have free reign to bring back anyone they want by any means they choose. And for that reason, the drama is bled out of the deaths that writers will inevitably use in attempts to create drama. So, so here we have a solution to that structural problem in the structure of comics as a medium where writer credit is handed off from person to person. Uh, how do we feel about this solution? Is it doing a good job? We're now six months into the uh, realization of this new paradigm in character death and its cancellation. Has it been overused, underused? Is it working out well? I think it is working out pretty well so far. Uh, one thing I like about it, and actually when I visited the uh, Hawkspox panel at New York Comic Con, um, basically all the writers present were talking about this. Um, what it does essentially is give X-Men writers a, a good opportunity to have like a, uh, a huge set of characters to play with. So it, it, it's kind of like... A, it's kind of like a toolbox where they can pull p- bits and pieces out of the entirety of X-Men history, which is very unprecedented. At no other point in comic book history, basically, have writers been able to 
use whatever characters they like um, and pull from whatever ever era of X-Men comics uh, they want to. And we do see that in a couple of the uh, ongoing books right now, which I'm, I'm sure we're going to get into later. But um, I mean, there's always the problem of um, lowering the stakes um, when death becomes too much of a revolving door. So I mean, while this is a clever mechanism, I think, uh, it does bear the danger of like having there be no very serious stakes. Um, but I, I guess this also gives writers an opportunity to come up with uh, other creative ways of, I guess, like creating stakes for our characters, which I think like some of them are, are doing a pretty good job at. And we've already seen that the resurrection mechanism is not foolproof. There have definitely been complications in the pages of X-Force when certain parties that have been made integral to the process have been uh, removed. And I think that we'll see more complications uh, with the resurrection protocols requiring the five mutants that are in the books just being referred to as the five as well as a telepath on xavier's level and cerebro there there are a lot of moving parts that could potentially hit a snag one of at least at one of which at least has already hit a snag uh just before we move on from this topic who are those five and uh how much of a prominent role did they used to have some are being increased in prominence certainly uh yeah you have classic claremont run uh antagonist proteus kevin mctaggart son of myra mctaggart who definitely has her own role to play in all of this uh you also have elixir formerly of New Mutants slash Academy X slash New X-Men and X-Force. Uh, and you have Hope Summers, uh, who featured prominently in a number of the major stories of the past decade or so. You've also got some characters that are comparative recent introductions, uh, Gold balls now going oh, by yeah, egg. Uh, and uh, Tempus, the uh, the time control girl, I, who, who I guess is not the same character as Tempo, the time patrol, con- the time control girl named Tempo. Is she or- is she the one from uh, Brew Baker's introduction of Vulcan? No, is that no, Tempus? Is that Tempus what she's from? That's Sway. That's Sway. That's the okay. other time travel girl. Okay, all right. Tempest so and Goldballs are both uh, Brian Michael Bendis creations. I believe their first appearances were in All New X Men 1 and then Uncanny X Men Volume 3, Issue 1, respectively. Um, yeah, so they were, um, I guess, originally students at um, Scott Summers New School in Canada, like back when that was going on. But um, I actually, they haven't seen a lot of spotlight since maybe gold balls a little more than tempo because he's been in i believe um brian michael bendis's run on spider-man 
but apart from that, no, we we haven't seen a lot of those two people in X Men comic books. And actually, I'm I'm kind of glad they're back because I feel like there was some untapped potential. Gold Balls was mostly like a joke character. That's I mean, let's be real. But I I feel like this is a really cute angle. No, Gold Balls a joke <laughs> character? Never. No. Next, you're gonna say that Shark Girl or that chick with the antlers were just gag characters. <laughs> Never. So there's another. So um, Ian, you mentioned that um, that Proteus is the son of Moira McTaggart, and there's another. There's another important aspect to this, which is that like not only is the uh, perennial problem of mutants coming back to life too often being elegantly solved by this new setting but also a perennial problem in x-men much more than most comics of time travel convoluting matters of character and of plot is also being elegantly simplified i think by a dynamic that was introduced in hox pox and that has only been alluded to since but but still certainly plays a role and what is this dynamic of time travel that we have now been introduced to uh very unprecedentedly in x-men comics well technically it's not time travel nolan i mean that's at least that's what jonathan hickman is saying in interviews i'm kidding but <laughs> sure but it's it's someone in the future causing things to happen in the past, you know, so it's time I could get behind that. But yeah, but all jokes aside, what what we're exposed to in Hawkspox is basically a big reveal about the true nature of um, who we thought was Moira McTaggart, who's actually Moira X or Moira 10, um, however you want to put it. Um, So Moira is basically a mutant, which nobody else knew about so far, which is, I guess, kind of a mutant power. But what her main ability is is that she basically gets resurrected after death in a way that is it, it, i want to say it's comparable to a groundhog day situation so on groundhog day we experience each day again and again while in in hawks parks moira basically experienced her whole life all, all over again and she's in life 10 now um especially in the in issue three of house of uh, X and then in several issues of Powers of Ten, we get brief glimpses into Moira's other lives, um, and we can kind of tell that she's been around. Um, she's tapped into all kinds of different ideologies. She's tried out some Magneto, some Apocalypse, some Charles Xavier, and she's in this life, in this reality, how how you want to put it, to basically um, communicate to Charles Xavier that she feels like all of the other things have been tried already. So let's try something new, and 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 I guess that's where it leads into the book's main concept with Krakoa and uh, I guess like Xavier's and Magneto's new vision for where mutant kind is going. I think so. I think there's a lot of specifics we could get into there, which have to do with the question of. Um, where the comic books are going and what kinds of things we can expect to happen in them next year, as we are currently recording at the end of 2019. Um, but we're probably going to save those questions for episode two. And I think that there's two other aspects of Hawks Pox 
that we should really delve into before moving on from it to the six successor comics that have each had about four issues uh, since they started. And those are a, a kind of a political or even like an international relations dynamic that is emphasized in Hoxpox that is quite unusual, though not entirely unprecedented in X-Men, and a space opera dynamic that's perhaps simpler to discuss. What is going on in space in Hoxpox? Yeah, in, in Hoxpox, in the many, many lives of Meyer McTaggart, in some of those lives where we see her living quite a long time, uh, a century, perhaps a millennium or more into the future of the X-Men's present time and there uh, her life crosses paths with Nimrod and the Sentinel technology and human machine hegemony of the Nimrod era. Uh, It encounters the encounters the Shi'ar and the possibility of future where perhaps mutants are forced to abandon Earth and instead become part of Shi'ar society. Uh, We also encounter the phalanx and are through through the data pages in Hawkspox we're given the relationship and relative power of the phalanx versus the similarly similar to X-Men readers familiar technarchy as well as the possibility of more even greater powers other hyper intelligent societies universal societies which we have defined in Hawkspox and in our second issue of New Mutants seem to be coming up again, where we also have a uh, technarchy-related character present with Cypher and his warlock arm. And we love Phalanx references because they are references to late 80s, early 90s X-Men, which was something of a golden age uh, with the introduction of a lot of characters who later became fan favorites in the mediums of comics themselves, TV, film, uh, Deadpool dates to that era. A lot of different um, beloved characters come from the time in which the Phalanx was introduced as a villain. Um. Uh, shit. What was I gonna ask? Uh. Oh. Oh. Okay. And finally, just to kind of like uh, conclude this section on Hawkspox, which we're certainly gonna have to discuss extensively in future episodes. I'll just say that like the idea of a mutant nation yeah. is not unprecedented. It, Genosha is a very obvious predecessor to this utopia. moment. But the idea... 
also Utopia, but the and even to some extent, uh, like Namor's international relations, I think, with other societies, but like they, but to be more uh, concrete about the specifics of this relationship, we have here a more complex and realistic sense of how a nation interacts with other nations in which um, uh, bipartisan treaties must be signed with many different nation states and it matters quite a great deal with whom you sign them, whether you can get all six members of the UN Security Council or only some of them, um, what kinds of economic and trade backing are implicit in these treaties, uh, uh, how intelligence agencies either honor or pretend to honor or just don't honor the terms of the treaties. All this is at play in Hoxpox and its successor comics. And if I can just kind of sum it up into a single phrase, the mutants are forming a kind of a anarchist or voluntarist nation fueled by uh, post-scarcity biotechnology, uh, which to me seems deeply referential toward the culture novels uh, and their use of post-scarcity economics as a kind of response to Star Trek presenting um, in some ways a more realistic vision of interstate relations in a post-scarcity galactic scale uh, future landscape of uh, humanoid relations. But on, a, on the smaller scale on which things are happening in the issue-to-issue -issue interactions of specifically the comics Marauders, Excalibur, and are any other ones having to do with international relations? What else? Uh, is it just those two? No, it can't be. Marauders has to do with the Hellfire Trading Company and its uh, economic actions behind the scenes. Uh, in X-Force, we do have the formation of a mutant intelligence network that is acting with dubious sanction uh, within other sovereign nations. It's what uh, Mystique is the one to dub a mutant CIA, which Xavier tries to backpedal, defend that it's not quite that. Uh, but at the same time, yeah, yeah, they're, they're definitely thinking about how to defend themselves from extranational threats, which may require them to act without sanction in the, within the borders of other countries. We do see them visit and uh, detonate a post-human super soldier meat puppet factory in Korea. Korea, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so this is a good moment for us to just kind of simply state what are the genres of the six comic lines that succeed Pox Pox, okay? So X-Men itself, the main line is a sort of an ensemble a comic but if we had to assign it a genre i'm not sure that we could 
if we had to, maybe it would be some kind of, what would it be? It's almost kind of a day in the life dramedy where the three issues that we have had to date are standalone stories, but they all follow the same central character of Scott Summers, happy family man, Scott Summers, hot dad, hanging out with his kids and family and paramours. Yeah, yeah. And his dad and his many siblings and um, and the kids who killed his kids, but they're still welcomed as kids. Speaking there, of course, of young Cable. But so, but so that one, I mean, the genre there is, is pretty simple, really not worth discussing in a way. It's just like the main... It's, it's called of, X-Men, uh, it's doing X-Men. You have... Yeah, it's the flagship book in one sense. In another sense, it's not. But in the simplest sense, it's the flagship book. It brings together the most popular characters, and it has them get involved in things that will matter down the road. But the other, but the other comics have more specific genres, right? So X Force, which we were just talking about, is very clearly, as it should be, as it traditionally is, a tale of paramilitary adventures, halo drops, and uh, cyber attacks upon foreign powers, with uh, information security and assassination attempts as a primary concern. So that's that. And there are still four other comics to consider, New Mutants being perhaps the most uh, difficult to define, right? But Excalibur, what's the genre of Excalibur? Oh, yeah, Excalibur is a mutant science fantasy. We're going off into the other world, into fey, other dimensions, where druids and figures of the Arthurian mythos and dragon babies, and evil brothers, and wacky cults of every shape, size, and description uh, are present and making our sword and shield wielding uh, new Captain Britain's life difficult. At the opposite end of the spectrum, also featuring uh, an inheritor of Psylocke's status as its main character, uh, Fallen Angels is the prototypical, archetypical cyberpunk comic. Something that X-Men has cleaved to very closely for the last 30 years. Something that it cleaves to perhaps most closely of all in this comic, uh, which has very few characters and is solely about an AI villain opposing a stereotype of Japanese Orientalism ninja character. It it's it it just like lives and breathes the the tropes of cyberpunk fiction. And then other than those we have what? We have Marauders. Yeah, and Marauders obviously being very like pirate inspired or but it's also surprisingly heavy, I think, on political intrigue. Uh, we were talking earlier about how um, there's kind of a Game of Thronesification of X-Men comics, and I feel like Marauders is the one book where we get that the most. We have a lot of uh, intrigues within the Hellfire Trading uh, Corporation. We have uh, Shaw 
Emma Frost, Kate Pride, Bishop, uh, all of them like making plans and like weird power plays and conspiracies. It's honestly, it's one of the things I enjoy the most about these new box books. Honestly, me too. It. I mean, I think to call it, particularly because of the conclusion of Game of Thrones, to call it a Game of Thronesification sounds cheapening. Yeah. It. It might be, depending on how much you mind, like, Game of Thrones Season 8. But, I mean, that's fair. Like, a lot of people fucking hate that. Yeah, I feel like what is meant by uh, Game of Thronesy in this instance is that you have a sense of political intrigue and scheming and sexiness. That is, yeah, I, I feel like all three are equally important to qualifying it as Game of Thronesy, and all three are very uh, present in marauders is uh the international intrigue the interpersonal scheming and also sexiness and well there's something it has that some comics don't typically have the game of thrones the books are full of which is a kind of a ambiguity about who is a hero and who is a villain and a, a kind of a discarding of those roles entirely, such that, you know, anybody could be fighting for good or evil at any given moment. And those who definitely are simply must work with those who probably are, you know, in order to get ahead. And, and that is certainly the dynamic that's being embraced by marauders. And it perhaps is also a dynamic that's being embraced by the entire line with the introduction not only of Sebastian Shaw, Magneto, Sinister, and Apocalypse into the fold, uh, so many other characters that I can't even list in, com- in completion. Celine, Tom Cassidy, uh, the, uh, they're just like, they just go on and on uh, with the introduction of all these villains into the fold, but also the introduction of non-mutants like Deathbird into the main cast of characters that like clearly a choice is being made about moving away from the binary dynamic of heroes versus villains and that and that in the forefront of that the like tip of the spear in that effort is happening in marauders but then we but we haven't we haven't stated the genres of all the different comics yet there's still the mutants New Mutants, we're actually following two different stories, one on Earth in Krakoa and the other rocketing off into the Shi'ar galaxy or the Star Jammer. I feel pretty comfortable calling that space opera. I agree. I think Ed Brisson's uh, role in issues three and four is plainly not space opera, but rather a kind of, um, what's the term, like a kind of like down-home, almost unpowered uh, presentation of life among superheroes. Certainly, comics have presented such a such a image of the real lives of superheroes before, but I'm not sure what to call it, honestly. Yeah, in in Brisson's story, following Armor and Glob and our two white French kids as they go to check on Angel and Bee, it is more of a sense of yeah, kind of lo- lo- looking in on old friends. Clearly in Brisson's issues within the New Mutants line, which does seem to be the main line, the most uh, eventful line, 
we are seeing an almost an, a, a very domestic and almost totally powerless version of events. Why would that be? Is it any kind of contrast with what was happening earlier in New Mutants? I mean, compared to our first two issues where Gun goes hitchhiking with a bunch of space pirates, then ends up in space jail. It's, it's definitely a smaller story. So we've given some kind of indication of uh, what each of the six comics that succeeded Hoxpox is bringing to the table and maybe even where they're going. But, we're, but we'll wait until episode two to discuss the real concrete aspects of where they're going and also to get into details about them because we don't want to spoil them for people who are reading them but not keeping as up-to-date as uh, the three of us are. So for just about 20 minutes to conclude this episode, we're going to touch upon the topic of villains, a very beloved topic, I think, in X-Men, a topic centering around Magneto, but extending out into many different villains in their territories, and which... um, uh, reveals the uniqueness not only of X-Men as a franchise up to now, but also of this specific run of X-Men for the last six months. So let me start by asking, what is different about Magneto now from the last 10 to 15 years going all the way back to Grant Morrison's X-Men? I think Magneto has been kind of on a on a villain versus anti-hero versus villain again versus hero type journey throughout the last couple of years, which is interesting. Um, uh, one writer who's done a lot of work with him in that regard was Colin Bunn. Um, I, but I, for me, he, he's always tapped into like all of these sides of the characters. So now it's interesting to see him in, a, in an environment where these distinctions are well, getting less relevant, I want to say, because it's the distinction between Xavier and Magneto is, even though Jonathan Hickman, when asked in interviews, will still call them um, a hero and a villain. Um, I feel like th- this distinction is slowly breaking down, and that's a good thing too. Um, he, I mean, Magneto still has a very like menacing presence, uh, as he has had in the past. Um, yeah, and I guess it's. Um, but I, I feel like the character's in a good place right now, especially after the many weird retcons uh, that have surrounded the um, new, uh, new X-Men by Grant Morrison. Yeah, I mean, Ian can tell you all about that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. If we want to look at where we saw Magneto in a big, dramatic run that was trying to tell bold stories and move in uh, strong, exciting directions with its characters. Yeah, yeah, turning Magneto into a drug addict who's possessed, consumed by an a, a mutant microbe masquerading as a drug, uh, which inspires him to level New York City. 
uh, amongst other things. Sure, sure, later writers, later runs, we find out that this wasn't actually Magneto pretending to be a mutant called Zorn, but rather a mutant called Zorn pretending to be Magneto, pretending to be a mutant called Zorn. What happened uh, to that mutant? Are they resurrecting him? Is he coming back to life? Are we going to... Zorn is yeah, back. And so mm-hmm. is Some Zorn is back, but is that Zorn back? The Zorn who wants to destroy where we currently are in East Harlem, New York. Is that Zorn back? I'm pretty we, sure we, she's, better, she's feeling better about that now, I would hope yeah. so. Okay. We, saw two, we saw two Zorns hanging out, chilling on some uh, habitat of Krakoa. Uh, I think it was in uh, House of X issue one during yes, the Ambassador's Great, during the Ambassador's Grand Tour. Interesting fun fact about that, actually, in the because for House of X issue one, they published a director's cut where we can actually like look into the original script by uh, Jonathan Hickman. In this script, the two characters are referred to as Zorn and Xorn, um, which is an interesting distinction between uh, two characters that actually goes back to the Ultimate Universe versions of these characters. Uh, which, again, was also written by Jonathan Hickman. So if anyone wants to read into that, uh, Jonathan Hickman also has a pretty good run on Ultimates uh, from a couple years back, I think. He has a lot of good runs. A lot of good runs that we can all recommend, including um, AVX, Fantastic Four, The Manhattan Project. Um, We'll get into those in future episodes. Yeah, certainly. But yeah, he, he seems to be big on Zorn. He's down with the Zorn. Zorn was one of his uh, horsemen of apocalypse in one of Moira's dystopian far future previous lives. Yeah, that's like nine. As for Magneto, though, he seems to have embraced this new paternal elder, state, elder statesman sort of role. Uh, where it seems that it's clear that he and uh, one of his children, the daughter that is still his daughter right now, uh, Polaris, are clearly working on cultivating a new, uh, less awkward relationship than has been a possibility for them in the past. Uh, Magneto is... Uh, in X-Men seem to be very, very comfortable, very in his element. We see other faces of the character. Magneto's chilling, but Magneto is, this is like Magneto's fucking dream, right? Like, he's, like, got everything he wanted without the sole responsibility. He's not the single dictator of Genosha. He shares responsibility with many other people, but, but he has a lot of the aspects of that role you know, right here for him. But with the validation that Xavier and his students are right there beside him agreeing that he wasn't wrong, or at least no more wrong than they were. It was sort of a forest for the trees kind of situation on both sides, relative to what they're trying to do now in Krakoa. Yeah, I think in a sense, none of them were quote-unquote right about anything. It's kind of the conclusion they've come to now, which is interesting because um, if we take a look at the way that Hawks Park is telling the story, apparently they've known that for some time. 
uh, although maybe uh, in the future we're gonna l get a better glimpse into like how exactly that works because like um, Hoxpox includes retcons that uh, would, would change a significant bunch of X-Men history uh, for I guess like the last 50 years or more um, but I mean we're, we're, I, I'm sure we'll figure that out um, anyways so I, I do think that this is kind of a new paradigm where all of these characters, including Apocalypse 2, are kind of realizing that they have to embrace a new perspective and, and, and try out a new approach at things. In this, in this current life of Moira's and the web of possibilities that expand out from that current life, yes, there are many new roles, not only for... Uh, Magneto, but for P Apocalypse and all the other X-Men villains, including Sinister, Sabretooth, uh, Mystique, and many other villains. And why don't we... We need to delve into all of them. We need to cover all of them because mm, a villain makes a story. And X-Men has always been marked by its good villains. This has always been a unique feature of X-Men among comics and among other forms of fiction that has especially good villains and so we need to uh we need to delve into this so branching out from magneto uh can we discuss apocalypse's role in this without um hypothesizing about his about what is to come going forward we, we can certainly try, although I have to say that I have so many thoughts, so many feelings, so much excitement, uh, given where the story seems to be building towards uh, coming out of X-Men 2, coming out of Summoner, our meeting with the Summoner, and Krakoa's joining with its long-lost other half Araco, uh, yeah, Apocalypse definitely seems to have his own agendas that he may not be sharing with the rest of the class. That seems to be a big part of what Excalibur is built around, and I wouldn't be surprised if it ends up tying into, uh, I wouldn't be surprised if it ends up tying into the return to Inferno that was alluded to in the Sinister Secrets uh, page that appeared in Hawk's Pox. Tune in uh, for episodes two and three for some in-depth analysis of what the Sinister Secrets mean. Obviously, we have no concrete provable ideas about that only hickman and the rest of the writing staff at marvel have those ideas but we're gonna try uh what do you think of the villains marius are they aside from magneto and aside from apocalypse how are they not the new villains only the old villains are they still villains or are they not i feel like again in a sense I feel like they are still villains. Um, like realistically, like taking a look at a character like Apocalypse, which I, I do have a lot of thoughts about. 
there's some irredeemable stuff that Apocalypse has done, and even Magneto to some extent. But it's it's interesting to see that barrier broken down, and it's interesting to like catch yourself like sympathizing with these characters that you wouldn't necessarily have thought as like possible you feeling sympathy for, which is interesting because in a sense there's just something there's just something so satisfying about feeling sympathetic for a character that has well often just been like a one-dimensional baddie although i don't think that necessarily always applies with apocalypse it certainly i guess it, it depends on the writer um i mean there's been some cool stuff with apocalypse lately um especially with uh rick remender touching on some of that mythology but i mean i i guess i i am enjoying the character work done with with apocalypse maybe even with mystique depending on like where all that stuff with destiny and her not being able to be resurrected leads i i hope there's some potential for great conflict like within Krakoa, which is honestly what i've i've been waiting for um i feel like there's a there's a lot of potential for that kind of setup especially when it's not as clear like again like who's like the moral actor or like how to judge those like power plays that could ensue. So I know I, I really am looking forward to that kind of stuff. So this is something that, that you brought up with me that I had not thought of before, which was the certainty. I mean, certainly it was obvious when reading the comic, how certain it is that destiny will not be brought back to life. Unlike the other mutants who are all being brought back to life but also the certainty that Blindfold, a very young and innocent mutant, will also not be brought back to life. And why that is and how that has been yeah. foreshadowed in yeah. comics leading up to now. I believe it, I believe it was um, Uncanny X-Men 11 in the last um, run on Uncanny X-Men. In issue 11, we see Blindfold um, possibly being murdered, but probably having committed suicide. And in a, in a very graphic panel, we can we can read the words "This is forever" like written onto the wall right next to her, which I thought was pretty shocking. And I um, at the time wasn't sure exactly where I was going because at the time that run was marketed as the last X Men story, which kind of a weird like marketing gimmick. Um, but I guess more. Sorry, I'm starting over with the sentence. Um, in a way that is even more sinister than that, I think this has been pretty good foreshadowing for what's to come for Precox on Krakoa. I feel like Blindfold must have had some awareness of that, of the fact that she wasn't going to make it back into the land of the living. Uh, which, again, it's very tragic because she's one of the youngest people around on um in mutant um, I guess. So to a certain extent, I, I feel like this adds to the sense of uh, kind of like a, a moral gray area because like on the one hand, sure, Xavier and Magneto have built this paradise for mutant kind, but it's, it's, it doesn't come without its sacrifices. And one of those sacrifices, of course, includes like not getting people you could bring back to life, actually back to life, because you have to maintain some kind of rule about like 
not allowing free cards on that island for political reasons or for ideological reasons. Um, I, I think that's an intriguing storyline, and I feel like it is going to be explored more uh, later down the line. Indeed, we're going to explore it more in episode two when we ask about a slew of mutant and non-mutant characters who are not being attended to. It's not that they must be attended to, but rather we're wondering what kind of uh, future is in store for them in um, X-Men comics. But to return to the topic of mutants specifically... Uh, and of villains specifically, right? So we have we have Black Tom Cassidy playing a very prominent role, I think. We have uh, Celine being mentioned in a, a narrative passage, a kind of a prose passage between comics passages. We have um, uh, Apocalypse, Sabretooth, Mystique all being featured in prominent roles, Mr. Sinister as well in basically two different incompatible personae, and uh, one of which I like better than the other one, but that's not really important here. But like, you know, we have all these villains. We have all these established villains. They're very familiar to people who've watched the 90s TV show. They're very familiar to people who've read X-Men comics. And then we have a whole new slate of villains a new set of villains and let's just have a quick rundown of which they are we don't need to include villains that were introduced in issue four of the uh six comics because that those just came out yesterday at the time of recording and like people may not have read that yet but like but let's just have a quick rundown of like who these new non-mutant, very explicitly yes. non-mutant villains are. Starting from Apoth. Starting with Apoth. Okay. Uh, Apoth, well, most of our non-mutant villains can be divided into two categories, I feel like. You have our humans as well as our, uh, as well as humanity's children, post-humans, Clones, mutates, cyborgs, and AIs, artificial life forms. Most of our enemies are non-mutant antagonists. Our sources of conflict in these Dawn of X books have been humans and their post-human children. Be these... Uh, mutates, clones, cyborgs, artificial intelligences, and it's one of these latter that we find in Apoth. Fallen Angels deals primarily with uh, Psylocke, Psylocke here being uh, the woman formerly known as Quanon, formerly known as Revanche, uh, who has claimed the title of Psylocke, and in some point in her pre-X-Men past, crossed paths with a primitive artificial intelligence that has uh, survived and evolved into the nemesis that she, X-23, and Young Cable are presently facing. 
I think this is a very accurate um, summation of uh, of Fallen Angels, which calls back to such excellent cyberpunk and proto-cyberpunk fiction stories as Spider Robinson's Mind Killer and William Gibson's Neuromancer and his Sprawl trilogy proceeding out from Neuromancer. Um, for that, for more than that, you may have to tune in for episode two and or read that shit. Those old ass books from the 80s from 50 fucking years ago, practically. 2020. We're, we're, we're here. We're there. We are there. We are there. Yeah. Like Akira. Like Akira. We, we have arrived at the 2020 Tokyo Summer Olympics. It has happened. It's happening now. It's being prepared for. We're there. The billboards are there. The infrastructure is there. And the, uh, the empty stadium in which Akira's best friend will expand into a giant flesh monster and try to engulf all of Neo-Tokyo is there. It only remains for the best friend and his engulfation to come along. Is, is that how Fallen Angels is claimed? I thought we were, I thought we were trying to avoid spoilers. Uh, yeah, well, obviously it will be a Fallen Angels event. Uh, yeah, no, I mean, but it also, like, that shit also practically predates Cyberpunk. It's also, like, you know, just because it had, like, a, like a, a Tokyo highway speeder bikes doesn't mean that it was cyberpunk. It wasn't. It was right on the cusp. But, like, that was the very beginning of the whole phenomenon. Like, for instance, like, Chiba City at that time was introduced by Gibson as a a place where you get serious biotech enhancements. But in, in, um, in Akira, it was not even a thing. They didn't even give a shit about that. They were like, oh, what's that? It's a place where you like go to the far end of the Tokyo subway. Now, what Chiba City actually is, is where Tokyo Disney is. So one thing I especially liked about this is how it it's mostly, I think, uh, in a way, a continuation of themes that have been set up in Hoxpox, especially about the inevitability of technological progress, but also the way in which... Uh, humanity's search for meaning kind of interrelates to that, especially with religious notions. And we see that especially in Fallen Angels, which probably that's something that we're going to have ample time to get into in in another episode of this podcast. Basically, what we're trying to say is that search for religion is doomed. We're all just going to shit our pants and just like sift around in the shit for new signs new napkins that look like the shape of jesus's face thank you all for listening tune in next time for not only a continuation of the segment focused upon ex villains but also a prospective segment upon what we expect to happen we're willing to stake our knowledge of this franchise upon predictions about what seems likely and what does not and we'll see you again soon in just one week on the school for gifted youngsters podcast